everyone and welcome to episode 37 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I will be your host as always today. Now today's episode will be, it won't be a strange one, but it will be a bit of a chatty one I think I'll say. Um, I'm going to just explain a few things um, and obviously we're going to be having, you know, historical basis is, is the History Hotline after all. And we will be looking at Caribbean women in World War Two as an overall topic. But before I get there, I already know and have planned several tangents and introductory points for me to reach that point in this podcast. And so I am essentially today, uh, as it is bank holiday, if you're listening today um, in England, it's a big public holiday. And so I figured I want to be outside. I want to be partying with my friends. I don't necessarily want to be spending hours and hours and hours on the History Hotline this week, so forgive me. I will be recycling a talk that I did um, at Durham University uh, a few weeks ago um, called The Spirit of Resistance under their uh, History Society um, conference that they had this year online. And I will be kind of going through my research from my master's dissertation, which is what I did. um, And I presented, um, you know, my research that I had done in the past. And also just kind of giving that some context within my own life and why I'm kind of thinking about the importance of this history specifically. Um, And so, yeah, bear with me. This talk was originally for a kind of presentation online as opposed to a podcast, but I feel like they're all one in the same. At the end of the day, you're here to learn about history and that exactly is what I'm going to do, just not in a normal kind of format. So instead of me blabbering on and making apologies for what will still be a great episode, I'm sure, uh, let me just get into it. Um, So at the moment, I work in a secondary school and amongst other things, I teach English, uh, English language and literature. And recently, one of the groups I had, we were working through um, John Agard's Checking Out My History. Now, if you don't know that poem or you don't know John Agard, you've never heard of him, check it out right now. Um, But John Agard, he is a Guyanese poet, a playwright and a short story author who moved to Britain in 1977. He writes mostly about issues pertaining to identity language, colonialism and history. He jumps between English and Caribbean Creole, uh, which my, you know, group that I was teaching it to absolutely loved uh, because we got to, you know, watch a video of him performing it. His poetry is definitely poetry to be listened to rather than read, unless I think you can speak in in that accent very well. Um, It was nice because I think my pupils for the first time were hearing someone speak like their parents or grandparents in an academic setting whereas you know we'd been studying the likes of Wilfred Owen and Seyfried Sassoon and all the World War One poets for a really long time where you know when we switch over to to John Agard and his his Caribbean background um, and his plea which is what the poem is about his plea for you know us um, people going through the the British colonial education system which is where he was coming from but also the British education system I'd say in this country to be taught about you know our history he says them tell me them tell me what I want tell me bandage up my eye with them own history sorry about the accent Um, but he highlights three historical figures throughout the poem that he wishes he'd been taught about um, and they are Toussaint Louverture, one of the leaders of the Haitian Revolution, Mary Seacole, uh, who was a nurse and doctress, who we've had an episode on, I'm sure, 
have a listen if you haven't already. And Nanny of the Maroons, Queen Nanny, who was a Maroon leader in Jamaica during, uh, you know, the time of slavery. Um, again, an episode is available on her if you would like to listen. Um, and so, you know, John Agard's poem, I would say, as a theme, carries this air of resistance because he is expressing his resistance to this education system that he has been part of and had to kind of suffer under. But also he's highlighting those three historical figures who, in, you know, their own ways have resisted, have rebelled and have caused revolutions, which were the actual themes of the Durham History Conference talk, uh, revolution, resistance and rebellion. And so that's kind of where I kind of started from when I was explaining um, my topic for the day. And I just feel like John Agard's poem really, it reminds me why I do what I do, because if John Agard was having these thoughts, how many, you know, years ago, and now here we are, you know, living in 2021, gone through what we've gone through, and we're still at that point where we're still fighting for these ideas that, you know, John Agard puts forward in poetry, and now we're putting forward in, in podcast form or in parliament, you know, if we take those petitions that have been going forward to change the curriculum, I feel like this struggle is very long-lasting, and I just really enjoy this poem. I think it's fantastic, and I think it's great that it's in the I think it's an AQA GCC anthology um if you if you did that when you were at school or if you're doing it now um but I thought I'd get into to the women in the Caribbean of of World War Two, which was my master's dissertation research um my second child I will say um maybe one day I'll publish that piece of work um but for now it will stay on my laptop um and you know await marking from the people that are marking it um but resistance is this refusal to act to accept sorry or comply with something and as i've said john Lagarde is doing exactly that he's rejecting the colonial education system um which educates children of today um or fails to educate children of today on you know their historical heroes of their homelands and I really like, as I said, the tone of the poem and it really kind of sets the standard for my own research and sets the tone. So as I previously mentioned, you know, John Agard uses two women um, as examples of people that we should be learning about in the education system, Nanny of the Maroons and Mary Seacole. And I feel like they are very clear um, kind of epitomizations of um, resistance and rebellion. Uh, Mary Seacole being of resistance and Nanny of the Moons being of rebellion and then Toussaint Louverture, the other example, being of revolution. And so I thought I'd talk to you then about this tradition of Caribbean women resisting and rebelling throughout history um, and how this transcends through the period of World War II, um, which is what I'm speaking about today, where Caribbean women really do fight to be included in the war effort, um, not necessarily for, you know, to serve their country, although that was a key motivation um, in my research, but also for what they could gain from serving in the war. They could, you know, turn over essentially their social positions. They were given unprecedented financial freedoms because they entered the job market at a time where, you know, they were needed, um, as opposed to waiting for people to hand these jobs to them. They really went out and applied and fought to get them. They they took these positions with both hands and they clung onto them and they took that professional experience. They took the experience of moving to England in some cases or moving to America during the war effort in order to kind of propel them 
when we get into this post-war era and we look at the kind of Windrush generation moving into Britain, a lot of the women were ex-service women. And whilst, you know, they fought in the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, which was not an employer of that many Caribbean women compared to, say, Caribbean men in the RAF, you know, the numbers were still very notable. And I think that they're often forgotten when we think about war um, and the war effort. I think an, in, an effort to include non-white men in the story or non-white people uh, is definitely concerned and it's very clear but I think that not enough is done to remember black women um, as well as you know black and Asian men that fought so this idea of the Caribbean woman resisting rebelling um, kind of comes from reading I did uh, from this Jamaican feminist theatre collective called Sistrin um, and they published this collection of so- short stories on the experiences of Jamaican women called Lionheart Gal. And the pre- um, preface to this um, kind of carves out, I'd say, the stereotypical roles for Caribbean women. And it notes, and this is in summary, but also in quotations, stories explore two opposing images of the black woman, which coexist in the psyche of the Caribbean woman. The image of the warrior woman, as typified by Ni, which is Nanny of the Maroons, um, a leader of the 18th century maroons and the image of nanny also um, the domesticated servant woman um, explore these ideas as they exist in the daily lives of 20th century women Ni, the warrior priestess um, led the eastern maroons to fight against their slavery but nanny is also seen as a domesticated servant woman who kind of fits a domesticated role in the home and those two images they're saying kind of form the psyche of the Caribbean woman um, and coexist in many ways, uh, but kind of carve out where Caribbean women kind of find themselves within society. So Nanny's powers, um, as we've discussed in past episodes, they're not just material, also cultural, drawing on spiritual traditions of the Ohima, the Ashanti Queen Mother of Ghana. Nanny not only lives in the past, and I really tried to stress this on the episode, Um, Of course, she led the Eastern Maroons um, and, you know, the enslaved people in their fight against slavery. But also, I think she birthed the spirit of rebellion in Caribbean women that follow her. It's said in Maroon tradition that Nanny never dies because a leader cannot be destroyed. They live on, moving to another point of struggle where their spirit can be utilised. And I really like that. I think it's really beautiful. And I think it kind of says a lot about black liberation movements in this country because I don't know not necessarily in the country actually in the world we have seen a lot of unity um, for different countries and different nation struggles in terms of solidarity and whilst that might just be on the internet um, and maybe in protest form or in petition form I think that solidarity is clear um, and I do like the idea of this um, the spirit of, of Nanny moving to, to one point of struggle to the next where her kind of spirit of resistance and rebellion can be utilised and um, so my master's research yeah it focuses on Caribbean women in Britain in the 20th century today we're going to focus on World War Two as that point um, because I do believe the spirit of resistance kind of lives on so my research I believe it was and in some cases still is a rebellious act to carve out a space in society as a black woman that breaks the mould shaped for you. Whether that might be due to the racialization of black women in society and the stereotypes that follow, or through patriarchal systems that are oftentimes relegating 
black women um, and women more broadly in some cases to domestic spaces, especially in the early 20th century. Or, you know, the other oppressions that could also be a play. Class being a huge one, religion, sexuality, factors that my research noted but didn't give as much depth to as I would like looking back. So what is this space carved out for black women in society? What are the stereotypes? Now, you might be thinking, well, the angry black woman is a more modern stereotype that's been birthed. Um, But I think my key stereotype and starting point for the research was this um, stance taken by the War Office during World War Two about uh, black women serving. And they said, and I quote, this is a direct quote from official War Office documents that I found at the National Archives. This is not just a conspiracy. You know, I'll post a picture of them with this episode or on social media if you want to you know, contest this, because when I read it, I nearly fell off my chair, couldn't believe it actually said this in black and white, like I'd seen it quoted, but I thought maybe it's been paraphrased, maybe it's not been quoted correctly, but when you see it in black and white, on this little piece of paper from like 1940 something, it all really does hit home, the stance was, we cannot agree to accept coloured women for service in this country, I'll say that again, we cannot agree to accept coloured women for service in this country, This was a stance taken by the War Office during World War II. This is a stance taken by British society to this day, if you ask me. But that's another debate for another day. I believe this attitude, as I've said, persisted into the post-war era where black women were coming from the Caribbean to work in the NHS um, as teachers in the education service uh, and, you know, doing factory work and things of that nature they barriers were put up for them at every turn whether it was to get housing to get jobs um to get support and i think that the stance that the war office took during world war ii was exactly the stance of british attitudes and exactly the feeling and sentiment of british people that persisted throughout um british history and it's obviously changed a lot now however is that you know sentiment still persisting hmm Mm, many fields and disciplines may argue um, that it is. So, as I've said, the sentiment began with a branch of government but extended into wider society quite quickly. Black women that migrated to Britain, especially from the Caribbean, often led lives of resistance because they had to resist the place that British society had for them. Now, my initial symbols, I've said, I began with Queen Nanny of the Maroons, uh, Mary Seacole, who was um, British Jamaican in 1854. She travels from Jamaica to Britain uh, to volunteer as a nurse during the Crimean War. She's rejected by Florence Nightingale. She's rejected by the War Office. Surprise, surprise. Goes to Crimea herself, sets up the British Hotel four miles from the front line, heals many soldiers um, through her experiences of medicine and healing of tropical diseases from her mother in Jamaica. Now, The question, the big question that I started with was how could England forget a woman who made it her personal mission to travel across the world, heal the sick and wounded soldiers on their front line during active conflict? Now, you might be thinking, well, she hasn't been forgotten. We remember her now. She's probably one of the famous, most famous black women in history in this country. And you're right. But it wasn't actually until her um, autobiography was found and republished in the 80s that her story was actually brought to life again and the statue of her outside of Guy's Hospital, that is very recent. So yes, Britain did forget. Um, And she notes in her autobiography this idea, this ideology, should we say, of the lazy Creole. 
um, which is what she would have been described as, and that's what she had been called. It was perpetuated by British society, um, but it was challenged completely by Mary Seacole's existence, let alone her desire to serve. Um, she mentions it repeatedly in her autobiography, this lazy creole, something that she ended up challenging her whole life and subverting. She overcame the barriers set for women that looked like her. But as we know, despite her service, England did forget the one who nursed her sick. Um, and I think that is very, very clear and very um, consistent with what Britain tends to do when it comes to black and brown people um, serving them. If we think about the NHS more recently in the pandemic or, you know, the Windrush nurses that came over very, very quickly and oftentimes forgotten uh, in World War Two, probably one of the times where I think service is, is used in the most sincere form during war because you are at the end of the day potentially fight you know giving your life um to serve a country or a cause those people have often been forgotten now mary seacole as i've said she's remembered quite widely now and often the only British woman that we think about which is a problem in itself um but yeah as i said if it wasn't for her autobiography being found and republished in 1980 would we even know about her? Would she be on the national curriculum? Probably not. Now, my point for this dissertation was that black women oftentimes have to write themselves into history to be remembered. So if Mary Seacole hadn't written her autobiography, would we know who she was today? Um, if Stella Dadsey, Beverly Bryan and Suzanne Schaefe hadn't written The Heart of the Race, would we know about black women's struggles and, you know, in the kind of 70s and 80s and even then, I don't think that book is widely read enough, in my personal opinion, um, for people to know and understand those histories. Um, one of the ex-service women I looked at was a woman called Connie Marks. Um, if it wasn't for her actually creating exhibitions about service women in, from the Caribbean in Britain, would British people know or care? And you might be thinking, well, they don't even know or care. But these this work had to be done by black women. Professor of Nursing, um, Elizabeth Anionru, and her recognition of Mary Seacole and things like sickle cell disease in her um, autobiography that she's recently published, you know, and all the historians that continue to do this work and commit their lives to this work of documenting the lives of black women in history, you know, if they didn't do this work, would they be remembered? Um, and that was the kind of question I was asking. So we have Mary Seacole as this example um, and we have Queen Nanny of the Maroons as another example. And then I have, um, you know, the women that I looked at that migrated um, across the post-war era and also during World War II um, as examples of, of women that were resisting their place in society. Dahlia Bean, a historian at the University of the West Indies, her research was monumental and instrumental to my own research um, because she is specifically written on Jamaican women during both world wars um, which was of, of great use during the project um, and her kind of key argument I'd say taken from her text was that and I quote blatant sexism which buttressed virulent racism punctuated the debate as to whether West Indian women would be allowed to participate in defending the empire throughout the war and I just thought that looking at the intersections um, of race and gender were very important. And it's something that uh, Bean notes 
to be of importance as well. So the connection of racism, sexism and also colonial classism, I would say, contributed to the erasure of black women from the narrative. Even when black men began to be recognised for their achievements, you know, it had been the work of the black ex-service women who had to undertake this remembrance. Now, once the war had ended and VE Day celebrations began, it felt like black women continued to fight a war with history, which was a war to be recognised. Now, in 1990, Connie Mark, an ATS corporal from Jamaica, began to address his absence due to her experience of the ignorance regarding black women's involvement in the war. She said, every time I mentioned that I had been in the army, people would say they didn't know there was any black people in the war. Mark created an exhibition, as I said, documenting West Indian ex-service women because she realised people did not know that they existed and even came to England to serve during the war. They were still really ignorant, she said um, in an interview that is transcribed and recorded at the Black Cultural Archives. Um, so if you if you ever want to listen to something like that. Now, the ignorance led to a lack of support for black ex-service men and women in Britain in the post-war era, because if you don't know these people exist, then you're not exactly going to create organisations to support them. So, um, due to this lack of support with employment and housing uh, from the British Legion, who we know is um, a big support of ex-service men and women, but in the time of the post-war era, they were not very supportive for black men and women. Um, three men called Alan Kelly, Hector Watson and Michael Arnold, who were all ex-servicemen, founded the West Indies Ex-Servicemen's Association, which later became the West Indians Ex-Servicemen and Women's Association. Now, I think the notion of like having an ex-servicemen's club only, men's, highlights that black women's efforts were maybe unrecognised by black men also. It's obviously the case that black men were more populous in migrating in the post-war era and more populous in their service during the war. Women did not serve on the front lines. Of course, that's understandable in the same way that men did. But I just think it's a bit symptomatic of this patriarchal system in place where women's work is demeaned as lesser in times of war and generally um, because it might be more in a domestic sphere. So whilst it's understandable, of course, a group of ex-service men should create an association suitable as a support network for their needs. I think it precursors this struggle for black women to be recognised within movements of black liberation more widely because their work is seemed and deemed as lesser. So initially, black men or women were not welcomed into the armed forces. On the 19th of October 1939, the colonial office declared, and I quote, that British subjects from the colonies and British protected persons in this country including those who are not of European descent, are now eligible for emergency commission in His Majesty's forces. So they were now able, only on emergency commission in 1939, 19th of October. Uh, World War II started in September of 1939. So it's only now, um, weeks into the war, that on an emergency commission, people of British like origin, so British subjects essentially from the colonies, not necessarily um, ethnically British, but nationally, your passport, your um, your citizenship had to be British. If you were not of European descent, you were now allowed to serve His Majesty in the forces. So this came about because Dr. Harold Moody, who we also have an episode on, wow, look at me plugging these past episodes. Um, he was a Jamaican-born physician who went to King's College London um, and then was not allowed um, to get a job. He was barred because he was 
black. Um, he then starts his own private practice and becomes a physician in Peckham. He was one of the lobbyists, actually. He also started the League of Coloured Peoples. He was one of the main lobbyists um, that was lobbying against this declaration that black or, um, black men or women could not fight um, or serve their country during war. Primarily, or well, not primarily, he'd fought and lobbied against many different um, racist kind of legislations, even during World War One as well. But his children actually ended up serving um, in the RAF. His sons, they were were medics and pilots, I think, in the RAF and in different kind of levels of service. Some of them were in the West Indian Regiment and some of them were in the RAF. Um, and so he said, you know, in response to this declaration, that we are thankful for this, but we are not satisfied. We do not want it only for the duration of the war. We want it for all time. If the principle is accepted now, surely it must be acceptable all the time. And his argument was that, you know, we don't want to just be commissioned on an emergency commission because you really need manpower and cannon fodder, let's be honest. Um, you know, if you can accept us as black people to serve this country in its time of need, then you can accept us to serve at any point. And he's clearly, it doesn't make any sense that any women would reject this, but obviously we know that people are, are working uh, under racist ideologies and beliefs. So obviously it's not really going to make sense to us Um Dr. Moody's statement, I would say, is significant because it's not just referencing World War II, but I think also post-war life. He wanted black people to be accepted for all time. That was literally his life's work and his life's mission, I think. So this desire to serve, similarly to Mary Seacole and her battle during the Crimean War, I think it reminds us that whilst black people have always been willing, their enthusiasm is often met with rejection, um, and this is definitely the case during World War II. Dr Moody's statements are echoed throughout British history as black people have tried to navigate British society. Um, you know, their education, their citizenship and their training often made redundant by the colour of their skin, as if, you know, their blackness is just a veil for anything they might have achieved or anything they might be good at because they're black. So it just can't count. I think that my biggest irony and favourite irony of this whole situation during World War Two is the fact that Britain are fighting against Hitler and Nazi Germany's fascism and this war is often remembered as this fight against what was bad, Hitler and his racism and Hitler and his kind of problematic, for want of a better word, viewpoints um, and these racial divisions that he was carving out in Germany and as he, uh, you know, gained more places in Europe, he was pushing this disgusting agenda of, of racial superiority of the Aryan race is just hilarious to me because Britain were doing exactly the same thing. Whilst not to that level of extreme, were the ideologies not the same? Were the principles of white superiority not cemented into war office policy? It was all the same. And yet they were happily, and this country happily remembers that war as a fight against fascism and racism, and it makes me sick because it clearly wasn't the case if you weren't even accepting of black people to fight for you in a war against racism and fascism, which is why I just really need that um, agenda to, to be crushed because it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, you were fighting against Hitler for different reasons because you really, did you actually care, Britain, about racism when you were perpetuating it across the world with your empire? I don't think so. Anyway. Oh. So, this idea um, that solidarity 
was more prominent than racial divisions, I think, is dented by public policy, which we've just heard. Um, and also the underhand rules that restricted service to British subjects of European descent only. So, as I've said, you know, there was that declaration from the colonial office. Um, a message actually came from Secret Service advisors at the foreign office to the consular offices that actually read, after this, you know, we can accept black people under emergency commission, another secret message was sent. This is all at the archives, by the way. This is not conspiracy theory. I've seen this in black and white, unless someone has made the paper look brown and, you know, faked it, which I doubt because it has to be regulated and they, they're sealed for a certain amount of time and, you know, all the historical practices that go into that. But they're there at the archives if you want to see them. I'll write the codes down if anybody wants them. Um, so it read that only offers of service from white British subjects should be actually considered. So even though they'd said, yeah, we're going to take black people from emergency commission, um, they actually then said, actually, no, only um, offers from white British subjects will be considered. But this was um, not a statement made in the public. This was a message from secret advisers. And it just clearly highlights this inconsistency between public statements and private actions. It didn't matter that they were saying, oh, yes, um, you know, we'll take anyone because they weren't going to actually do that. Um, it wasn't expected that black people, especially not black women, should want to or even will fight in a war um, because that could give them claims, I would say, to further independence in the future. Remember, all these Caribbean colonies are still not independent. They are under Britain. So by the end of the war, islands of Jamaica had actually contributed disproportionately to the war effort and I don't just mean in manpower I mean financially too the amount of money that they were donating for there was there's literally an RAF um, plane named after Jamaica because of how much money they gave um, and considering the size and significance of of these islands in regards to being colonies it's phenomenal how much they gave so the colonial office were only allowing um non-white people to serve under this emergency commission as we've said suggesting there's actually no change in attitudes towards black people so in britain the ats the auxiliary territorial service which is the service that women were serving in from the caribbean and obviously in britain as well it's, it's a service that started in britain um it was only actually it had a bad reputation shall we say it had a reputation for only being suitable for working classes who would be focused on domestic and clerical work? That was the role. And so within that, there was also an association with sex workers um, that sex workers were, were most likely to join the ATS. And that challenged its reputation because why would you want to align yourself with a service that doesn't have the cleanest rep? And so it was an unpopular service in Britain and it struggled to meet recruitment targets in its initial stages. However, this perception dramatically improved actually when princess elizabeth now queen elizabeth ii she joined in 1945 so yes the queen current queen of england did actually serve um during world war ii um she was about 18 at the time i believe um so yeah the war office was reluctant to admit west indian women to the ats um an advert stated, and I quote, only girls with good clerical experience of those with an educational standard school certificate would be considered. Working class women from the islands were ineligible because they could not have that qualification. That qualification was reserved for middle class women that had afforded um, an education in a secondary school that would allow them to have that 
uh, educational standard school certificate, which we, you know, if we go back to last week's episode, which was on the British colonial education system, we will know that many people only went to primary school, secondary schools were paid for, or if you got a scholarship, which was rare. And so it meant that on the islands, the only the highest in society would be good enough for the ATS, which contrasts with the idea that in Britain, uh, it was seen as a lower class service. Now, Princess Elizabeth didn't join till 1945. So through, you know, the war started in 1939. And during this kind of majority of the war, it was it was deemed as a kind of lower class service. The Ministry of Information ran films um, to try and meet quotas, um, but quotas were often not met. And this, again, is documents from the War Office um, at the National Archives. These quotas were not met. However, in the Caribbean, um, the War Office was rejecting uh, black black women uh, left, right and centre because they believed they were not suitable. Coloured women would not be accepted for service. Um, so they continued to reject them. And I wanted to bring up the case of a woman called Miss L. Curtis, as she is known in the archives. So in 1941, in Bermuda, a Miss L. Curtis successfully applied, pending a medical exam, to join the ATS until the War Office realised she was black and dismissed her. In a letter to the Colonial Office from the War Office, it was explained that it was not apparent from Curtis's application that she was coloured. Otherwise, her application would not have been accepted. We do not wish to accept Curtis, and I suggest that the Governor should be informed that there is at present no suitable vacancy in the ATS in this country into which she could be accepted. This is basically saying, no blacks allowed, we don't want you here. Now, you'd be finding this interesting because, as I said earlier, the War Office said that by emergency commission they will accept black people. However, when you forward to 1941 Bermuda, you've got this colonial office um, letter from the war office saying, we're not accepting Curtis because she's coloured and we're not going to accept anyone like her. So as you can see, there just is no consistency with what, you know, the British state is saying. But that's because individual people have their own racist ideologies and they push them within the institutions that they work in. And this is how institutional racism works. And I saw a tweet about it the other day because I think there was a racist teacher that got exposed on Twitter. And the question was then, well, how has he impacted black students or non-white students that he's taught over decades? Because he is a racist individual working in an institution like education, just like you have racist individuals working within an institution of the war office or the colonial office at the time, how are their personal ideologies impacting the work that they do? And this is how institutional racism is upheld. It's not like this abstract concept, you know, it's people holding these ideas, working for institutions and being able and afforded the luxury of proposing and pushing these racist stereotypes or ideologies into their work and impacting society in that way. And I just think it's important to note at that point. Um, now, with the case of Miss L. Curtis, um, the war office really didn't, they didn't want too much smoke. Um, and there was a lot of resentment building up in the local community. So then they agreed to start taking on a small number of black women. They said the numbers could be very small. All that matters is it's a gesture. And that's a quote as well um, from the war office um files in the national archives i'm just being very clear i'm not making this up this is 
factual information that I've taken, no conspiracy here. So it feels like it's just a gesture of appeasement. As I've said, all that matters is gesture, um, which I think is significant because there is a lot of this um, during this period. However, it doesn't matter. The gesture is enough. Caribbean women grab the opportunity and run with it. And that's what matters, I think, at this point. The majority of women that ended up serving in the ATS were either top of their class scored top in the examination that they had to do to join um or were headhunted louise osborne was um, an example of someone that was headhunted because they wanted and i quote the best west indian recruits they were told to select women of the highest qualifications um and so you know women in the caribbean as we can tell then had to be essentially top of their game um, working already in you know the the field whether they were medical secretaries or administrative assistants or that kind of role they had to have scored top of their class in, in their examinations or they were picked out um, you know hand-picked whereas in Britain you know the ATS wasn't even making quotas and when it was the reputation of it was very poor so it was like they were happy to accept um, working class women in in Britain however that did not apply in the Caribbean and they were only taking women of the highest class and of the highest educational standard, which just highlights this idea of, we hear it all the time, but, you know, as a black person, you've got to work twice as hard to get half as much. Well, here we go, because, you know, you would have worked probably 10 times as hard to be top of your class or pass the exams and come first, yet you were still afforded the same position um, as, as people in Britain that might not have even gone to secondary school. And so... Yeah, these women that did join were tended to be of the middle classes um, and were quite fortunate already in their in their social standing in the Caribbean. So it wasn't it was very transformative for them because they were still gaining newfound freedom. They are still women at the end of the day and still bound by their by their gender um, in regards to kind of the patriarchy and what they're allowed to do outside of the domestic sphere. Um, they're now you know being afforded financial freedom. They are now being afforded independence. They are moving away from the Caribbean without, you know, parents or husbands or children. A lot of the women were unmarried and, and childless. Um, they were young. And so they would be given this opportunity that was quite unprecedented for them. I think an important question to answer is why did they join? And I think it's kind of the same same reason Mary Seacole decided to travel to the Crimea to help wounded soldiers. They felt it was their duty. They felt it was necessary for them to be part of the war effort. Um, I don't think it was as simplistic as the call for volunteers was in Britain. It wasn't just about fighting for your country in the case of black women. I think their desire to join the war effort was multifaceted, centering around their identity, their uh, personal identity, their national identity and their social identity. Um, a lot of the women would have had older brothers, uncles, cousins, fathers even that fought in World War One or were fighting currently in World War Two because, as I said, this... Um, acceptance of Caribbean women in the ATS was kind of late into into World War Two, and so you know they were following in the footsteps of their families which is common you know you do what you, your family do because you know they do it well um they get respect from it maybe and so a lot of women also felt that Britain was their motherland as we've discussed this ideology many many times here and they felt like they were doing what was right for their mother country um, I think there was a man called Billy Strachan who who spoke in a documentary I, I watched. And he said that I felt like, you know, if your mother needed help, your mother was fighting, 
you wouldn't even ask a question of whether you would help her. You would just do it. And that was the kind of attitude that he had towards joining the RAF. Um, and he was an ex-serviceman and he fought in the RAF. Um, I think they also knew, however, that in this position, they would be able to gain experience, professional qualifications and an experience of another country. In, when their own countries were going through um, unemployment, very high unemployment rates, labour strikes and a lot of kind of political instability and tension because I think this is where the Caribbean begin to kind of yearn for independence and start to to make kind of grooves in the sand about about what that could look like and their kind of discontent with the current system and so women black women Caribbean women at this point have a lot to gain by by joining the ATS in terms of their own uh, growth and development as people and a lot of the women actually that did join the ATS, migrated to Britain in the Windrush generation, um, because they had experience of living in Britain, they had experience of what that would be like, and they also had the financial freedom and work experience to be able to move and find a job and set up home, etc. So I think it's a very important time. I think war is a very, 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 very important time when we look at societal shifts that come after. Um, I think it was after... World War One, or maybe, yeah, World War One. That, that women in Britain got the vote because, and one of the key arguments was the work that they had done during the war and supporting the war effort from home. Um, it was clear that they were, should we say, ready for the vote, very patronising in a way. Um, but that is the case. War really does shift things. Um, I think it, it's like a reset in many ways in this case, especially when we think about empire, because it is after the war that Britain really cannot maintain this many um, colonies and countries and we start to see so many different countries pulling away trying to get their independence um, and so it's very important we think about war not just in the social sides but looking at the kind of political impact and, and the wider impact of war not just on the actual battles themselves and what it means for for winning or losing the war shall we say and so I could go into to more um, kind of individuals that fought in the war but I think we've mentioned some of them we've got Ina Collymore Woodstock, Esther Armagan, Connie Mark who I mentioned they were some of the main people's whose story I, I got to listen to through interviews that had been done at the Black Cultural Archives you've got Olga, Olga Crawford Shevrington, Nadia Katus, um, to name a few from different countries from Jamaica from Trinidad from Guyana um, from Honduras so it was nice to be able to not just look at Jamaica women. Odessa Gittens, another woman, actually, um, her kind of idea of, of being um, a British woman in the colonies, um, by British, I mean, by citizenship and kind of upholding this idea of the mother country. It was very interesting to hear kind of her perspective, which differed from, from some of the others. Um, and just listening to their stories, I think, was very powerful because it's not something... I feel like I had done before in a sense of when I think about war, you often think about, about white men um, fighting on the front lines in the trenches. I just think about Wolfred Owen's exposure. I think about poetry, um, war poetry, and you don't often get the perspective of, of Caribbean people, let alone Caribbean women. So this is why I enjoyed this research and why I wanted to share it with you. Obviously, I have it written up in a about a 4,000-word chapter and I have just summarised from it. 
Um, but I hope you enjoyed, you know, everything that I had to say about, about World War Two. It's a weird time to think about it in the middle of May. Um, but I don't know. I just felt like it was a thing to share today. So I hope you have a wonderful week whenever you're listening to this. Um, maybe you'll listen to it in actual November because it would make more sense. But have a great week. Um, thank you so much for listening. Please like the History Outline on Instagram, Twitter. Give us a follow on LinkedIn. We are available on all good podcast platforms. So please follow us um, and be ready for the next episode thank you so much for listening have a great week goodbye